Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. There's been a lot of uh, discussion in recent weeks about corporate failure, corporate fraud, and of course, I think the trigger point for this has been uh, the abrupt exit of Alan Joyce from Qantas. I'm certainly not suggesting that he was a corporate failure or indeed a fraudster. I mean, he. Uh, he made a lot of money for the shareholders of Qantas. Uh, I'm not sure the customers are particularly keen on him yeah. right now, though, being no. a customer myself. I'm well, like, he's not my favourite person. My plane this morning was an hour late, four days after they changed the baton in a corporate head office. But it's certainly been a trigger point, hasn't it, for what goes on at the high end of business and in boardrooms and so on. I mean, with Joyce, he, he did his job. It was to maximise profit and return for the shareholders at the expense of the customers, the workers and everyone else it would seem, and he's been widely castigated uh, in Parliament, and who knows where that road is leading. But I've had a lot of involvement with high-end corporate crooks over the years, and probably the most famous of them, uh, or infamous, was Alan Bond, who at one point was the richest man in Australia. Uh, He was uh, a very wealthy man. He was a folk hero in Australia, subsequent to um, financing the winning uh, America's Cup bid back in 1983. So before he was recognised as an embezzler, because he embezzled like $1.2 billion, am I right? Mm. Like, there is a billion in there, isn't there? Oh, there's billions everywhere. (laughs) One of the things he did was he um, bought Channel 9 from Carrie Packer. He was going in to negotiate, I think, the acquisition of one Channel 9 in one capital city and then said, look, I'll buy the lot for a billion dollars. Like you do. And uh, Packer said, you bet. <laughs> he subsequently said you only get one Alan Bond in your life. It made Kerry a billionaire. And as fate would have it, he bought the company back not that long afterwards for about half the price that he paid for it. So... Alan was an interesting character, but the embezzlement related to two things. There was a Van Gogh painting, the irises, and uh, the... Like the famous one that people would recognise? That's the one. Bond Corp leased it. They purchased on a a leasing arrangement uh, with a residual at the end. And between the time of the acquisition and the uh, term of the lease, it had exponentially increased in value. And so what Bond did was then he sold it but didn't distribute the profit amongst the shareholders of the company. naughty. He treated it as his own personal painting. So that was part of it and he was convicted of that and he was sentenced to a term of imprisonment. So how much are we talking there for...? Uh, Millions, but not billions, right. you know, not a lot of money uh, <laughs> Unless, uh, compared well, to yes, yeah. what he did with Bell Resources. Um, with Bell Resources, he, you know... Stripped the company of a billion dollars. We're talking the nineties too now, aren't we? So, well, thirty almost thirty years ago, a billion dollars—a lot of money. You think about it today, what that would be worth. He uh, used that money to prop up Bond Corp, which was failing. So that's his own company. Yeah, that was his company. And what did Bond Corp do? Like, what was its main uh, business? Amazing things for a while. I mean, he uh, he uh, established Swan Brewery. And Swan became the beer to drink everywhere. He had big Zeppelins flying around capital cities, drink 
Swan Brewery. Nice. Swan Beer. But the dark side of that was to get his beer into hotels, he had to throw out a lot of publicans. So the company took over the leases. People had held these hotels for generations out on the street and um, a number of them apparently suicided. So um, So he took away their livelihoods, just... Their self-esteem, their family history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he was quite ruthless. I never found that with him, actually. I found him to be very personable. Oh, no. Is that because, though, he would be what we might describe as a successful psychopath? In some circumstances, very charming, very charismatic. Now, we've met at least one successful psychopath who you thought was very charming and who I couldn't bear from the moment that I met him, and I won't oh, name names. We're back to that. Oh, back to him, yeah. yeah. So In retrospect, you were probably right. I was definitely right. The other things that Alan did was he bought the Chilean telephone company. Um, he bought a brewery in the United States. Why? I'll get to that. Oh. And... You'd like this being English. He bought a, a feudal village in the UK and uh, he owned the village and um, all the property in it. Uh, why? Well, this is an interesting question. I mean, uh, when I was a much younger bloke, um, when he'd first done his deal in Yanchep, he was a sign writer. He, he was from the UK. He was a sign writer. He trained in that trade and then <clears throat> started painting signs for real estate agents in Perth. And, you know, before too long, he got the idea, well, maybe I should be selling real estate and making the money rather than just being a cog in the wheel kind of thing. And so he purchased land at Yanchep, subdivided it, and it was a pretty arid area. Uh, The story goes that he had photographs tricked up that turned the sand green, and then it was marketed offshore so that people thought they were buying verdant hills. He turned sand dunes into verdant hills and yes he was a con man he was a confidence stricter that's how he got his start so he's like the old-fashioned yeah literally confidence man made a lot of money my father years ago and i was a kid said you've got to watch this guy alan bond he's very very successful he's going to go a long way and then um fast forward a, a fair way and he bankrolled the america's cup challenge and won and he became a hero, an Australian hero. The Americans Cup, America's Cup had been held uh, forever, really, I think 150 years or something like that. It had never left the shore, and Australia won it. I didn't know him then, but I often thought, if I ever meet this guy, I'm going to ask him why he does all this when he's made so much money. Well, as fate would have it, he was referred to me by his legal team, so this is after he's been caught for the embezzlement of resource. What is it, Bell Resources, in 1996, and also the painting. He's been caught, he's in prison. The painting came first. He wasn't in prison. The charges on Bell Resources came later, and I was retained by his lawyers because and this is all a matter of public record, by the way, and, in fact, Bond wrote about me in his book that he saw me. So they were concerned because they couldn't get proper instructions from him (laughs) and they said we can't figure it out maybe you can and as it eventuated he'd had open heart surgery he'd had one of his heart valves replaced Mm -hmm. and I didn't know this I mean I'm not a surgeon but evidently you can never get a perfect seal on the heart lung machine and you get microemboli 
little <laughs> bubbles of air creeping in that in a percentage of people can lead to diffuse brain damage in the frontal lobe. So these little tiny bubbles of air end up in the brain and that causes... Damage to Microtraumas. Microtraumas. It generally resolves. But I was seeing him after the surgery and I said, I think this is all genuine. And then we did a psychometric work. So he couldn't him. give them straight answers because yeah. of these mini embolisms he's having. He kept saying he's, he's struggling with his memory. And people thought it was all a bit of a oh. rot and a bit of a con job. Yeah, yeah, to get out of the charges or get out of some level of culpability. I said there's a, a basis to this. You need to get the advice of a neurologist and other people who have that expertise. And um, so f then fast forward, we go to Perth and he's applying for an adjournment on his committal hearing on the basis that he's unwell. And the lawyers are saying, look, we can't get any proper instructions from him. They asked me to come to Perth, but they didn't think I'd be called. But then all of a sudden it was escalating because the Crown thought this was all rubbish. So I was called to give evidence. Um, Philip Dunn KC was representing Bond. He called me and I gave the evidence. There was nothing terribly remarkable about what I said. But people couldn't, I guess, deal with the dissonance of a highly successful billionaire who now had trouble tying his shoes almost. And uh, I can still remember the uh, prosecutor put some questions to me and I was much younger then. I had a rush of blood and I said, well, look, the way he presents today, Alan Bond could not run a corner store. <laughs> it was true. But I, could, I saw the words fall out of my mouth, right? And I saw them jangle across the floors of the court and down the stairs. And I thought, maybe a step too far. We got the adjournment. And I said to Phil Dunn, we've got to get out of Dodge. <laughs> <laughs> Straight to the airport. I may have overstepped here a little. Yeah, well, you know, it was actually correct. I mean, I we tested his IQ. It's all a matter of public record. But... He was functioning very much in the average to low average range. As a matter of logic, uh, someone doesn't get to his level of success with an average IQ. And there's a nifty little trick you can do where one of the last things to that you lose if you've got brain damage is your vocabulary. It tends to be more resilient than other forms of thinking and cognition. And you can prorate the vogue vocabulary score to get an estimate of pre-morbid functioning, which I did. His vocabulary score was way above the others. And, um, you know, he was in the very superior range. Did they get a neurologist to actually look at the brain trauma as oh, well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Bond, I suggested, was really in the, the range of Mensa, um, close to it, if not there, you know, the top one or two percent. And... I said, this clearly speaks to the problem. But answering your question, I said, we need to get a neurologist, we need to get all these sorts of experts in to firm up on this consideration, which then occurred during the course of the adjournment, which was you know, quite a period of time. Uh, the Crown then retained their experts, and what we then ended up with uh, was a, an ongoing hearing that went on for, you know, in various iterations for about, uh, you know, five or six weeks. 
And, uh, what, every day? You were there every day? No. Um, it would go for three days. It was then adjourned. Yep. Had to come back. And um, I guess the final kind of bit to this story is that um, he was admitted to, the, I think it was at St Margaret's Hospital in uh, Perth because there were grave concerns about his health. Well, physical health. So obviously he's got the cognitive decline at the moment as a result of mm. the microtraumas in his brain. So he's now got physical health problems too. Absolutely. And look, there's this stunning photograph of him, me and his lawyer walking across some traffic lights on St George's Terrace, which really speaks to that issue. And it, that ended up on the front page of the bulletin. It's a big case. Alan Bond was a big player. So he goes into hospital... And we said, you need to rest. Don't do anything, just rest. It's adjourned for a while. We come back. And before I'm called to give my evidence or finish my evidence, the Crown Prosecutor, uh, Brian Martin, probably the best I've encountered, uh, he ended up as the Chief Justice of the Northern Territory from memory. He said, we just want to interpose a witness. So that we've got, we've got trouble here. And you could hear the doors of the court open. And then there was this clickety, clickety, clack, clack, clack. And I looked around and it was a double amputee with Dunlop retreads on the stumps of his legs, pushing himself along on a rollerboard. He cannot make this stuff Into up. the courtroom? Into the courtroom. And he was the witness. And he, you know, with great theatrical poise... Um, hauled himself into the witness box and he was asked who he was. I can't even remember his name and where do you come from? And he said, well, I normally live on St Bede's Island, which is an island off the Queensland coast, tropical Queensland. And he said, um, do you know Mr Bond? And he said, yes, I do. And he said, well, how do you know him? He said, well, we've been trying to sell the island for a while now and Mr Bond flew up the week before last with his son and they arrived in a helicopter to negotiate the acquisition of this island. And uh, I thought, should have told us about this, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, the prosecutor said, well, how did you find him? He said, oh, he was one of the most astute, ruthless negotiators we ever encountered. He said, I've got no more questions. Oh, dear. So I hopped back into the witness box and he said, well, you still think he's brain damaged? I said, absolutely. I said, nobody with their frontal lobe intact would be so stupid. This is classic impulsivity. And he said, nice try. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> Didn't go for it. Well, you could see that that's a point though, right? A week before a major court case in which your defence is that you have significant brain trauma. It was just to get an adjournment, um, but it was fought like a high court case because by then Bond was no longer the local hero. You know, he'd been charged with various matters mm. and there was a bit of tarnish. But his criminal behaviour didn't start as an adult, did it? It actually started much earlier, like when he was a teenager. There was some suggestion that he was before the children's court for break and enter type offending. And uh, I don't think he ever went to a boy's home or anything like that, but possibly the trend was there then. And then, of course, it all became about... People thought it all became about the money. So getting back to the earlier part of the story where 
My father had said, you've got to watch this guy. He's going to go a long way. I finally got the opportunity to ask him the question. Why? That's it. I said, you know, and by then we had very good rapport, you know. And I said, look, Alan, I've wondered about this. A lot of people wonder about it. You've made a lot of money, even in your 20s. You're a multi-millionaire. Why in his twenties. Yeah, that's what he got out of Jan Chevenel. Oh, so that's when he sold all this land that he that's painted right. the ground, the sand, or yeah, whatever yeah. it was, green, and these internationals bought it, thinking it was fertile. He said, "Tim, you've got to understand. It was never about the money. It was only always about the deal. Never about the money. Always about the deal." And he was just addicted to doing deals. That's really what it was all so about. So, is that what drove him to? go and buy this island then, even when he wasn't obviously maybe thinking straight, he was still driven by that impulse to do a deal. He wanted to do deals. And even when he went to jail, you know, <clears throat> because there were other matters afoot. And, I, you know, I spent about four years with him uh, one way or another. And I went out to the prison and the prison officer said, look, he can't see you at the moment because he's running finance classes for the prison officers. <laughs> And I said, I've got to see I'm sure this. there's a movie about that. It, it's just <laughs> extraordinary stuff. And so I said, do you mind if I sit in? I could learn a bit myself. They said, no, well, they took me up there. And there he was with a whiteboard, you know, text to colours. And he was giving classes on applying for a bank loan and then how you multiply your money. That was interesting and humorous enough, but... Um, what I found even more humorous and interesting was there were a lot of prison officers with their notepads writing down, trying to get pointers on how to get rich quick. So he was quite a character, Alan. And um, So he just liked the endorphin rush of winning, doing deals. He loved to win. And this has been the situation with a number of these high-profile people I've assessed over the years. I won't mention the other ones, but Alan was written about, Alan wrote about himself... He would really acknowledge, I think, that what got him out of bed in the morning was the love of the deal. And But he didn't care about people. I mean, you said he found him personable. I mean, would you say he was charming? Uh, very charming and a uh, good sense of humour. But obviously he didn't care about people at all. He would do whatever he needed to do to do the deal. It was all about that. Well, it would seem so. I remember seeing some footage... Um, it was actually, I think, after he died. Ironically, he died when they tried to redo the valve replacement operation about 20 years later. He, had a, uh, he needed to have further surgery. He was living in England. And all the things he had said to me and others that he would do when he was released from prison to resurrect his empire, he was doing. And I sort of admired that. I thought he had a lot of drive, a lot of tragedy in his life too. You know, his second wife... Di Bliss, who was a charming woman, died, drowned in their swimming pool. Accidentally? Uh, I don't know. I don't think he was responsible. But no, no, I just wondered, like, if, if there was, like... Nobody knows. Okay. There, there was some suggestion she was very depressed. Right. But, um... but you found him personable, like, nice. He was obviously, you know, well-grounded. He knew absolutely what he was doing. So, so his criminality totally lacks empathy for the people he's hurting. But he's not... He doesn't have any... Psychological disorder, though. He's totally grounded no, in time and space. No, he wasn't uh, crazy. He didn't have any psychiatric disorder. Uh, he certainly had a lot of depression, I think. Um, but his cognition... You see, the interesting thing was, obviously, his brain power bounced back. 
and getting back to my little anecdote about he couldn't run a corner store, I said, but it should resolve in six to 12 months, as I understand it. It's a matter for neurological opinion, but that's my understanding. That part of the conversation was never quoted in the press. So you can see the headline. It was, Alan Bond could not run mm-hmm. a corner store. Yeah. That was in the early start of uh, part of our professional interaction. But, you know, it, he kept seeing me and, um, you know, it was really for ongoing assessment. Did he suffer from depression as well? Do I remember seeing that somewhere? He was depressed, he was anxious, but, you know, when you're facing a charge of stealing a billion dollars... And was he found guilty of that charge? He was, And he went to prison, obviously. He did, but he did very well. He was well represented, and I think his head sentence was something like four years with a two-year non-parole period, and then there was a legal mix-up between state and federal jurisdictions and consequently on appeal his sentence was reduced and he got out. See, I find that interesting because obviously he hasn't, hadn't physically harmed anybody but you're saying that, you know, through a lot of his business dealings people did get hurt, people lost their livelihoods, lost their businesses, lost their identities almost, you know, people who'd run these breweries or whatever for Mm. decades and potentially suicide as a result of his actions and I find it interesting that kind of white collar criminals get like two years four years and are then quickly released but people die as a result of the things that they do because of their malfeasance they take their dreams away they take their capital away and he's responsible for those deaths one way or another uh, or the board is, or the people that were yeah. pushing the buttons yeah I mean it was an empire so you know he was at the, the top. he was the apex but the there were mm. boards everywhere that would run different aspects of the But it takes people who are that cold and calculating and will do whatever they need to do. It's the culture. Yeah, to run these companies. You know, it's very Darwinian, really, you know, kill or be killed kind of thing. Um, he wanted to sell beer in this instance. So he was an interesting fellow. I mean, that's true about light sentences for some. Others are not so lucky. You look at uh, Bernie Mainhoff, yeah? Bond and others in Australia, convicted of, you know, significant corporate fraud, have certainly got off lightly in the past. It's way different than the US, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so another fraudster we could bring in would be Bernie Madoff, who some people will have heard of. And he's an American fraudster and financier who masterminded basically the largest Ponzi scheme in history. Mm. I think it, it was like 65 billion or something. It, we're talking extraordinary numbers. So he's basically just another con man, isn't he? He's getting people to loan money to invest and then he's paying those people like dividends with other people's money and it just built from there. 65 million. There's a great Netflix series on him uh, that I watched. Very interesting character. Charismatic. A lot Again. of these people are charismatic. Yes. They have the power to draw people in. And they have the power in particular to draw in vulnerable people who want to make money because of their kind of insecurities and so on. So Charming, charismatic, mixed with the total lack of sympathy and remorse, which allows them to set up these schemes, knowing full well they're 
scamming people and they'll lose their life savings or whatever. And he was heavily involved with the stock exchange too, wasn't he? So he was very embedded in financial culture in the US. Oh, and he was a hero. Everyone wanted to be on his books because of the returns he was giving. But it was. It was a, ultimately, it was a Ponzi scheme based on nothing. It was a house of cards that fell apart eventually. When you talk about charming, charismatic, I'm not sure that those descriptions relate so much to Donald Trump. (laughs) Oh, Donald Trump, the gift that keeps on giving. So in terms of being cold and lacking empathy and being able to do whatever needs to be done for self, you know, I think he's the ultimate, isn't he, really? I mean, obviously, I've never seen an assessment on him, but I would definitely definitely consider him a psychopath. I mean, he's got all the hallmarks, surely. Uh, he's an inveterate narcissist. Which often go hand in hand. He has no guilt. He has no shame. He's very dangerous. His niece, Mary, wrote a book about him. She's a uh, PhD psychologist. And uh, extraordinary descriptions of his behaviour that go way back to his childhood. The family was entirely dysfunctional. He's dysfunctional. It would appear that his progeny in various iterations might be dysfunctional. Yes. And, you know, who has the deluded gravitas to challenge uh, an election for the US president and think they can get away with it? But you know what? I intensely dislike Donald Trump, but I have to give it to him. The most recent issues that have come up and, you know, he had his... um, his picture taken when he was arrested, his mugshot, and then he monetized it. And I thought, you've got to give this man some credit for thinking. Who else would go, you know what, I can make millions out of this, and then people are buying it. Well, I'm sure he has advisors, but his mugshot ended up on mugs. (laughs) Oh, you cannot make this up, can you? And he's a very dangerous person. He is, because he will do anything. So we're talking millions of dollars. You know, Bernie Madoff is $65 million. I don't know. Sorry. Bernie Madoff, $65 billion. Um, Alan Bond was however many billion that was. It was $1.2 billion from memory. Which Murdoff kind of puts in, you know, small fry compared to Murdoff, uh, Madoff, isn't it? And then Trump, who knows, you know, what, what deals have gone on and if there has been election fraud, then, you know, these people are very influential in the highest ranks of societies. Well, the claim now about Donald is that he's overstated his wealth. He overstated his capital position to get loans. And he's, it's what Bond did too. He, um, all of his empire was built on borrowings. And when the creditors started to get nervous and tried to call up the loans, that's when he fell into strife. So they, they, they're big risk takers because things that might cause us anxiety in terms of, you know, taking on huge loans for businesses and so on, doesn't touch the sides with them. But they don't think they can lose. That's the narcissist in them, isn't it? Mm. It's like they think they are superior to everybody else. Incredible in self-belief. Always. Mm. And that's why when somebody challenges them, they really can't understand that because it's like, don't you know who I am? How dare you challenge me? But so, so that's something you all have in common, isn't it? That undying self-belief in their superiority, then that narcissism, which is next level with these guys. What else do they have in common? And you said you've you've worked with a few of them over the years. Some of them we won't name because, you know, they're still with us and we don't want to get sued. So what Uh, are their other characteristics? 
Well, you know, high level of intelligence, um, self-belief, high levels of energy and drive. Um, the primary focus in their lives is themselves. And being successful? Being seen to be successful. And when they get caught, no remorse. It's all about um, self-justification. And we See can... what you made me do, that type of thing. It's always someone else's fault. Always someone else's fault. And I mean, these are the extreme level ones, aren't they? But really what we're talking about here are the successful psychopaths that are in boards all over the, all over the world and these successful companies, they are potentially medics, pilots, academics. Politicians. Po oh, don't forget the politicians. You know, uh, police. Any of these roles where there's a hierarchy, a very defined hierarchy where success is measured and quantifiable and they can demonstrate their superiority, they will be drawn to these roles. The interesting question is, when does it start? Is it a childhood thing? Uh, what goes on in the family home during formative years? I don't know. I mean, uh, Donald was indulged from the moment he was born by the sound of it. His father was always bailing him out, giving him money. Uh, he was the quintessential spoiled rich brat by the sound of it. And out of that, it's never challenged, so you travel through life with a, a chronic sense of entitlement. So I think it's both then, isn't it? We've said that before. All of these people are ultimately a combination of nature and nurture. So these guys who are super successful but cold and unempathetic and very predatory in a business sense, that's partly in their nature but partly ultimately in the way that they were raised. I agree. I don't know much about uh, the stockbroker's childhood, but obviously driven to succeed. Driven and money. Seen as successful. I mean, I've never understood it. How much money do you need and how many houses do you need? It's a bit of a thing in Australia now, of course. You've got to have not one house but several. But what drives that? Social media, keeping up with the Joneses, competitiveness... It's not just the people at the top of companies that have these sort of personality defects, if I could put it that but way. But they, they take it to the next level. And I do wonder whether we are going to see some other um, high-level businessmen potentially put under the spotlight going forward because, you know, there are certainly more out there. And, um, yeah, we've seen some discussions in this space recently. And so I expect to see those continue and again mm. not wanting to say too much we'll have more of those discussions offline because mm. yes it's all rumor and innuendo at the moment but um, we shall see where it goes yeah it's very interesting and it doesn't go away you know they come and they go but someone else will fill their shoes and it's you know greed simplicity greed is good as gordon gecko said it's good for them not for others yep so that was motive and method looking at basically corporate fraudsters and, and some of the issues that are in the media swirling around, being discussed at the moment. And again, we shall see where that goes and um, perhaps come back to this topic at a suitable time. It'll keep uh, surfacing, I'm sure. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. 